Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, dads, for those of you that are in the room, you know that it's uh, so easy, our society, we, we tend to diminish the role of the fathers and are always at the subject of our humor. But on this day, we want to make sure you understand, if you're a father in the room, we honor you, we treasure you. And so everybody together, a big hand to all our dads that are here in the room. This is, uh, this is your day, so I wrote it this way. Dad, thank you for being a provider, a coach, a mentor, a travel guide, a home renovator, a teacher, a cook, a tutor, a health care provider, a counselor, a bodyguard. Thank you for just being Dad. Thank you for being the spiritual care provider and forming spiritual formation in our hearts and helping us grow in Christ. Thank you, dads, for being who you are, who Christ has called you to be. And so we just honor every one of you Thank you for being a part of it. This is your day. Have you been treated royally so far? Three here, two there, and none of the rest. Ladies, we have work to do today, so we're going to help you do that. It's so good to have you here. Well, as uh, you heard, get your Bibles out. We're in a series called James Character Counts, and so I want you to get your notes out. We do print them in the bulletin so you can take notes as well. We're continuing in the series on James, and we're looking at this whole area of character, and James has been challenging the followers of Christ how to grow in their relationship, and you know, he's, he's got some strong words, doesn't he? Okay, at least when I read it, it seems a little bit strong. And so James is really, he comes right over the top. And so we're going to look at this whole area of character. So James chapter 4, that's where we're going to go today. And while we're going there, here's what I want to do. I have a confession I have to make. I've never, ever, ever made this public before. So if you want to tweet it, post it, whatever you want to do with it, this is going to be, you're going to hear it right here. I love trucks. I don't drive one. All right, John, I was waiting for a truck man in the room. I love trucks. I grew up, so those of you that know my story, if you've been around here for any length of time, I grew up in the western part of Canada on the prairies. I grew up in the farming communities. Trucks were a staple part of farming communities. When you think about it, that's all that you ever saw. There were half tons, three-quarter tons, one tons. There were club cabs, regular cabs. There were crew cabs. There were step sides, straight sides, flatbeds. Trucks were just part of our life. So wherever you went, you would see trucks. And so I grew up always around trucks as part of my experience. Now, I noticed something that began to make an influence on me. when, I, Even at a young age, I recognized this, that whenever a, a person, an individual or family would buy another truck, they would always tend to buy the same brand that the generation before them bought. So if grandpa drove a Ford, dad drove a Ford, the boys and the girls are going to drive... Okay, that wasn't a hard question there at all. I'm setting you up. I'm making this really, really easy. So if grandpa drove a Chevy and dad drove a Chevy, the kids are going to drive Fords. So if that... No. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So there's this whole generational loyalty. And when I grew up, it was always about the big three. There wasn't the whole, you know, the, the market hadn't really changed. So we have the big three that were there. Anybody know who the big three are? Ford? Okay, Dodge. They were called Dodge at the time. Yeah. That's when I was growing up. So it wasn't all that long ago. And there was a Chevy. So here's what you had. You had the big three. You had Ford, Chevy, and actually, does anybody remember? Well, let's do this. They had subsidiaries. There was Ford and... Good for you. Who did that? Who gave me that response? All right. You win a free coffee today. Just help yourself in the gym. (laughs) Ford Mercury. There was Chevy and... You're driving one. You're disqualified. Anybody else? Yes, GMC, John. Nice truck, by the way. I, see, this is the problem. Now I have to preach on Envy next week because I like John's truck. And then there was the third manufacturer, which was... And what was it called before Dodge? You're on Fargo. Wow. Any, who else knew that? Fargo. Everybody's like, Who? Did you know the Fargo brothers are the ones who actually first built the vehicles? It was the Fargo brothers that built it down in Michigan, Hamtramck. They built the trucks. Now we're off to something that's got nothing to do with my message, but thank you for asking. I'm a truck guy. They built it, and they sold it over into the Dodge world, and then Chrysler carried it on. But here's what I picked up about the trucks, and I started to think about this. These manufacturers work extremely hard at preserving generational loyalty, And so they would use models and slogans to try to promote brand loyalty so that you wouldn't switch out on them. So Ford had a motto. They've held it for 40 years. What's Ford's motto? Anybody? Oh, I heard it in here. Built Ford Tough. Yeah. Built Ford Tough. Any Ford truck drivers in the room? They're not that tough. All right. (laughs) Then there was Chevy. So Chevy had a motto. And now Chevy has switched theirs up. So I'll take any one of them because they didn't really hold on to anything for a long period of time. Anybody with a Chevy motto? Yeah, like a rock. That was probably the most uh, prominent one we remember. But there's another one that Chevy had, and I thought this was really good. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevy. Well, why wouldn't you buy a truck? Who doesn't like baseball? Who doesn't like hot dogs? How many love hot dogs? You're going to eat them at the barbecue today. It's Father's Day. You know that, right? Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevy trucks. And then, of course, it comes down to Dodge. Now, this is going to go back a little bit. So their branding, it was called Job Rated. And then when they moved over now into Chrysler and now Ram, one of their strongest models was Guts Glory. There you go. Guts Glory Ram. Why did they spend all of that money promoting such strong brand loyalty that we remember? It was this. They were trying to instill in their consumers this sense of confidence that our trucks are reliable. You buy a Ford, it's built Ford tough. You buy a Chevy, it's built like a rock. That's an interesting statement, actually, by the way, because rocks don't move. But... um, (laughs) It's built like a rock. It's going to endure. And then you get the Dodge statement in the mix as well. And I started to think about this whole branding towards confidence. They want us to operate with... And if you get the definition of confidence, confidence is that you have this firm trust or you can believe in something, so that's the trucks, or you can believe in someone. Now you go, Doug, I didn't come to church today on Father's Day, except the men enjoy this. I didn't come to church today on Father's Day to get sort of the narrative on truck history, but here's what you did come for. 
that James tells us that confidence, everything that the car manufacturers and truck manufacturers are trying to get you to understand, James says this is exactly what counts when it comes to character. But here's the deal. What James is going to identify for us is that so often the confidence that we have in our lives actually gets subtly traded out for a character flaw. And the confidence that many begin to embrace is exuded from a basis of self-reliance, self-promotion, and self-accomplishment. And James goes, be careful. He goes, that's not where your confidence comes from. He says, your confidence comes from Christ, not from your, cap- uh, your capacities or your capabilities. So I want to show you this because I thought on Father's Day, what a great day for us to talk about building our character, particularly confidence, and having that quality of confidence in our lives that will carry us through our life. Is she ready to go? Here we are, James chapter 4. Get in there. Let's read this together, going down to verse 13. Here's what James wrote to the uh, believers, early church. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or to that city. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to carry on business. We're going to make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. So what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. So instead, what you ought to say is, if it is the Lord's will... We will live and we'll do this or we'll do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. And if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and they don't do it, this is sin for them. Whoa, James. Like he just, like, again, right off the top, he comes across and he speaks to something that was beginning to permeate the church culture. And here's what I want you to think about. It happens so subtly. It happens to us that we get caught up in our secular society so easily that we embrace the values and we embrace the goals that we don't even realize that often it's at odds with our expressed faith. And James begins to speak to these early followers of Jesus. And if you're new to the Bible, this was written in the early first century, and it was written to the believers living in the ancient Near East. So James would bring encouragement and teaching, and he would also bring correction, and sometimes a little bit of a rebuke. And James is probably noted for a lot of rebukes. But what he does in this little text, here's what I want to share with you. He gives us a couple of principles that are warnings, and then he gives us a principle that is actually a life goal that I want to leave with you. So if you've got your notes out, I want you to write them down, and we're going to dive into this together today. Here's the thing that I would pull off of this text for us as I look at what James writes. Number one, be careful because arrogance will undermine your confidence in God. That if we allow our character to slide over into what becomes a character fault, and our confidence is really a mask or disguise for arrogance, it will undermine our confidence in God. All right, a little bit of interactive church. How many of you, by a quick show of hands, would say that you have either met or you know a person who's arrogant? Anybody? Well, look at the hands going up this morning. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt after you met that person? You just kind of go oh, that doesn't sit right with me. You talk with that individual, you listen to that individual, and there's something about arrogance that unsettles us, and we walk away and we go, this just doesn't sit right with me. I don't like what I feel. And you go away, and you know in your mind what you're thinking to yourself, I don't like arrogant people. See, I don't think anybody's ever walked up to an arrogant person and said to them, hey, that's a remarkable character trait you have. When I grow up, I'm going to be just like you. We don't do that because we know, we both know socially within accepted society rules, and we know biblically that arrogance chafes when it comes to our relationships, and so we don't do this. 
And yet what James pulls out is he raises a legitimate concern and he goes, listen, arrogance has no place in the follower of Jesus and maybe you don't recognize it and maybe it is subtle, but he says, I see it because I listen to your conversations. And so go back to your Bibles, look in your notes, we'll put it on the screen. James 4.13, I hear some of you saying this, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or we're going to go to that city and we're going to spend a year there or maybe we'll just spend a month there and then we're going to carry on business and we're going to make money. And James goes, you're speaking the very same way that everybody who is not a follower of Christ is speaking and their values and priorities are radically different than yours. And he goes, and yet you've embraced the very language that they've embraced. In fact, you've embraced the very goals that they've embraced. And he goes, and I hear it in your language and I hear it in your tone and arrogance is permeating the culture of the church, and we can't do this. You go, Doug, where where do you see that? Well, here's what I see James addressing, that arrogance begins to boast in our capabilities, and I broke it out this way. We say, I will choose when, and I will choose where, and I will choose what, and I will choose the timing. See, that's my capability. I'm going to choose what city I want to go to. I'm going to choose how long I want to spend there. I want. You go, well, isn't that just drive? Isn't that just assertion? Isn't that good entrepreneurial spirit? I'm going to show you how James brings correction to this. And he goes, look, what I hear is a lot of boasting, and it's very, very brazen. And it reminds me that when John the Baptist heard about Jesus, and you guys that have been around for a while, you know that it, this has always been one of my life verses. It's, in fact, it's probably the central life verse that I continually bring back to mind to keep me on track. It's John 3.30 where he heard about Jesus gaining popularity and his disciples were all upset and they said, John, what are we going to do about this? And John said to his disciples, his followers, he goes, he must become greater and I must become less. But see, that's the antithesis of what society tells you to do. They say, you must become greater and everybody around you must become less. And hey, dads, if you're in the room this morning, don't get caught up in that trap. Don't get enticed by that. I want you to hear what James is talking about. And it's true for all of us, but particularly for men, because we really do. We drive a lot of our energy and we get a lot and we bring a lot of our sense of achievement from what we do and how we're able to perform and what kind of accomplishments we can stack up in our life. And James says, be careful here, because then all you're going to do is you're just going to boast and brag about things that you actually have no control over. And so we have to look at this and remind ourselves that arrogance will actually undermine our, our faith because we begin to look at our capacity. I made this happen. I did this on my own. I'm a self-made woman. I'm a self-made man. Nobody else leaned into this. I did it all on my own. And so the Bible puts a warning out for us that the character that counts is a confidence that's not built off of arrogance, but it's one that will fully trust in Christ. And it's interesting, when you encounter arrogant people versus confident people, you can see there's a differentiation between the two. And if you're, it's not in your notes, but if you're taking notes, I'm going to share some. I was reading an article by Jennifer Houston, and I was doing some reading this week, and I wondered, what's the difference when I'm talking with somebody who's arrogant, or at least perceived to be, and somebody who is confident? Because often we go, well, isn't it a thin line? Isn't it just like this moment you slide across, and then you come back, and you walk in confidence? But the more I read, the more I study, I realize, no, there's a huge chasm. There's a huge difference between arrogance and confidence. So if you want to write some of these down, when you think about the perspective, an arrogant person is always single-minded in everything that they do. It's always about them, and they're always superior. You can never, you'll never accomplish what they've done, and they'll always one-up you. You ever notice that? You can talk about what you've done, and then you walk away, and you go, hey, they just did better than I did. 
How is that even possible? But a confident person, they're always people-minded, not superior-minded. They're always inclusive, and they love to hear about other people's accomplishments. And then what about the attitude? Well, the arrogant person, and you'll know this, when you meet an arrogant person, you ever notice that they lecture at you? They tell you all that they've done and everything that they're doing and everything they're going to do, and you feel like you're being lectured at, where a confident person will actually listen to you. They're comfortable in their achievements, but they don't have to one-up you. And so they'll listen as you talk this through, and it's fascinating when you look at this and you consider what James is speaking to here. Arrogant people are self-centered, where uh, confident people are self-aware. And when it comes to relationships, arrogant people tend to be extremely independent. They don't need anybody else. I did this on my own anyhow. Where confident people tend to be open and vulnerable and trusting and bring people into their world. And communication. This one's really, really interesting. You know when you're talking to an arrogant person, they are always right. They're never wrong. And we've never seen anybody like that on the world landscape this day, have we? I'll say no more. They're always right, and they're never wrong. And yet when you look at a confident person, what are they doing? They're always learning. And they admit, I didn't know that. And they know the limit of their intellectual capacity or their abilities, but they're willing to grow into those and stretch those. And then when you talk about an arrogant person and you talk about eye contact, let me just ask you a quick question. You'll know when the person is an arrogant individual. Because what you'll do is you'll walk up to an arrogant person, you'll get into a conversation. You've been there. You know what happens with eye contact? As soon as you get in the conversation, they're looking past you. You ever notice that? They're looking for the next person in the room that they could maybe go talk to that's a little more important than you. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and their eyes are always past you? I was in one of those this week, and it's awkward because you just want to grab them by... Don't you want to just grab them by the shoulders or by the ears? and just go, hey, I'm here. Like, look at me. But confident people, they look at you. They actually stop, and they make eye contact with you. So there's so much practical help when it comes to this. And the reason I share this is to go back to what James talks about. He goes, be careful because arrogance will undermine your relationship with God. And Jesus actually spoke to this when he did the beautiful presentation of the Sermon on the Mount, talked about the principles of the kingdom, and he said, you know, blessed are, and he goes through this beautiful illustration and helps us understand kingdom principles. He lays out what the kingdom really looks like, and then he gets to the end of it, and he goes, just in case, just in case you miss this. He says this, Matthew seven twenty six. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Now here's something. Let's take the word foolish out and put in arrogant. Is like an arrogant man who built his house on the sand. It is so subtle and it happens so quickly. And James says, be careful because it will undermine your relationship with God. If you're writing the principles down, write down the second one. Number two, arrogance. Here's the thing about arrogance. It ignores the uncertainty of life. So there's two things that really come into play here. One is that arrogance says that I'm in control, that we just talked about. And the second one is arrogance is almost like I'm invincible. I'm my own superman. Nobody can determine my life. I am a self-determined individual. Now, we would never say it with our lips. But James says, I see it in your lifestyle. I see it by the way you speak. So our words sometimes betray the fact that we never take into account that life is brief. And there's a brevity factor that we have to understand. 
Uh, anybody in the room enjoy golf? One, two, three, four, five, six. Anybody bad at golf? Let's go that way. All the hands in the room go up. All right. I, I enjoy golf. I'm not a regular golfer, so when I do get out there, you know, it tends to be a little side to side down the course fairway. But I do enjoy golf. I enjoy the game when I do get out. But if you're a golfer or you have a golfer in your family, here's what you need to know about them. There is nothing like the experience of getting up first thing in the morning to be one of the first players on the golf course. Sun's not even up yet. You get down there, you get your golf clubs ready, you get together with the foursome that you're going to play with, and you get in your cart or you walk over to the starter gate and you wait for permission to go down to the tee box to play the game. And you can just feel it. There's this coolness in the air and you know it's just going to be a perfect day. See, if you golf with me, it's always a perfect day. So it's going to be this perfect day. And when you finally get the clearance to go down to the tee box, everybody kind of goes through their ritual. You have your own who gets to hit first. And after you reluctantly in all humility go, no, you go first. You're not really being humble. You just don't want to see how bad you are. You get your ball and you bend down and you put it on the tee. You get it in the ground. You pull out your driver. You look down the fairway. I'm left-handed. I'm going to have to hit this way. But there's something about getting your driver. You get your stance. And you pull that driver back for the first swing. And the sun's rays are just beginning to come up. And you look down the fairway. And if you've been there, you know this. There's that little bit of a mist hanging just above the course. And they were waiting for the dew to get off the ground before you get out there. And there's that little mist. And your club is behind you. And you bring that driver through the air. And there's this swoosh. And when the face of the club hits the ball, there's this crack and the ball just sails down the fairway like this white missile on its trajectory. And every golfer knows that this is absolute symphonic euphoria. Look at that ball go. It doesn't get any better than this. And you stand and you watch, proud of what you just did. And then you're watching your ball and suddenly you go, far. And if you don't know what that is, if you golf with me, you learn your numbers because that's when your ball is drifting out this way, that way, or everybody else is in danger because you're on the golf course. You go, well, Doug, I didn't come to church to learn about trucks and golf. You did. You just didn't know it. Why did I share with you? Because this is something that helps me. James reminds me of something that brings me to a golf course. James chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Every time I step onto a golf course and I look down that fairway, early in the morning when that mist is down there, I go, as soon as the warmth of the sun hits that vapor, poof, it's gone. And we fail to measure our life by the brevity that God has given to it. And so what we do is we do a lot of boasting and a lot of bragging but we don't take into the equation the fact that I have no control over what tomorrow is going to look like. And I really have no power to determine the outcome of my life, but I do have the ability to choose how I'm going to live my life. And James says, wouldn't it be great if the character quality that we had and we exuded was confidence, not arrogance? That we understood that life really, really is brief? Where we live, Laura and I, our neighbors, we have two seniors that live next door to us and they both have some health issues and they're going through some difficulties so they had to put their house up for sale. So with the sale comes, you know what happens when you have to sell stuff? You have a garage. All right, a garage sale. Because all of you are shoppers, right? We all know. So when you see garage sale, you think bargain. 
And that's why we stop at garage sales. So we've been helping a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Well, okay, we've been shopping a little bit over the last two, let's be honest. But we would go over and help out a little bit. If they needed some things moved around, I was willing to help. Here's what fascinates me about the shoppers who go to garage sales. That when they get there, everything's already priced down dirt cheap, right? But then they want to barter on those prices. So something that was $90 when they bought it originally is down to like $10, and people go, $2. (laughs) I go, $2? It's not worth $2. I love our neighbor. She's this feisty senior lady, and this one gentleman was trying to get it just for a couple of dollars. She goes, no, I'd rather give it away than take that money for it. And that's how you feel when somebody is disrespecting your prices. So why, why are we even talking about that? Because everything that we spend our life acquiring gets reduced to nothing. And we struggle over its value when we get to the end of it and we realize that everything that's in our homes is worth nothing. It's worth nothing. It's all got value that's assigned based upon our societal values, but it's got nothing in terms of eternity. And you realize that what one man builds is just another man's rubble. And there's no strength in that at all. And so I look at this and I see Ecclesiastes and it says that we all come to the end of our lives as naked and as empty-handed as on the day that we were born. Look at that verse carefully. You know that we're all going to die, right? This is not new news. Unless Jesus comes. So we're all going to die. So not a depressing day, just an honest day. And you know that should you choose, some choose cremation and some choose to be buried in, in a coffin, a casket. You know that you can't put it in the casket with you. I've done lots of funerals, and I've not seen cars inside of a casket. And I've not seen book collections and plate collections and clothes collections inside of it. And yet that's where we put all of our energy. And we forget that we focus on the wrong things. And so you have this unbelievable reminder by James that says, you know, the arrogance fails to focus on the brevity and understand that there is a brevity to our life situation. And the more I got thinking about this, we were talking with the communicators for today, and I realized all of us are pursuing things that are not necessarily the most important values in our lives. So it's a little bit like a Jenga game, that little block game. Look at the screen. I got thinking about what are the things that we spend our life on. So whether it's family or money or health or fame or success or power, pull one of those blocks away, and which is your block that's going to bring the whole thing down? And James goes, be careful, because the brevity of this life, you're focusing so much on things that aren't going to endure through the test of time. Make sure that whatever you do, that you're building into your life the confidence that comes out of a relationship with Christ. And here's the third principle if you're writing them down, and I do want you to write this one down, because this is the positive response James gives us. He goes, true confidence is when you trust in God's plan. True confidence is when you learn how to trust in God's plan and when you become a person who implicitly trusts God and puts God first in every dimension of your life, you're actually building into your character the true quality of confidence. It's not based upon your self-achievements. It's not based upon your capabilities. It's really based upon a faith and a dependence upon Jesus Christ. Look at James 4.15. He said, instead... You ought to say, if it is the Lord's... What does it say there? Will. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. Now, this is powerful 
This is a very subtle shift of words, but it has a seismic implication for your life. Rather than moving the Lord's will to the back end of your life story, James says, bring it to the front side of your life story. That just remember that who you are, your personality, your gifts, your abilities, your career, your family, all that you have, it is a gift, it is a blessing from God. He's given it to you. And so as you look at your life and you look at your future, James is just saying, why don't you just do the subtle reversal of the language? And instead of saying, you know, yeah, and yes, I do believe in God, he goes, no, 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 bring it all backwards. Why don't you start it off and say, I love the fact that you are entrepreneurial. I love the fact that you dream. I love the fact that you want to develop businesses. I love the fact that you want to travel, that you want to raise a family, you want to have a secured future. But he goes, why don't you start with the phrase that if it is the Lord's will, all of this is going to come into play. And it's the dependency that we make. It's the statement that we make. And James says, in the middle of their culture, and this is a culture that is very much like their culture, it was consumed with what we could have in life. And he's going, bring God back into the center of the equation. And dad, let's lead our homes. Let's be the voice that speaks into our families, that reminds our families that everything that we do is all premised on the will of God, his purpose, his plan for our lives, not what we can do just on our own power. Now, let me tell you, the one reservation that I face over and over and over, when I talk about God's plan and God's direction for our lives, I will occasionally and more often hear people say, you know, Doug, you talk about trusting God, but here's my struggle. I have a hard time placing trust or confidence in someone that I cannot see. Does that make sense? You're, you're asking me, you're, you're saying there's words here, and you're asking me to trust someone that I cannot see, but I have a hard time trusting somebody that I cannot see. So you can follow that reasoning, right? That logic? All of us have trusted somebody that we have never seen before. And I'm going to prove it to you. At least I think the majority of us in the room and those online today. So here's how we do this. Have you ever flown on an airplane before? Raise your hand. Did you have anything to do with that? No. Unless you're a pilot this morning, we'll talk later. Anybody who's ever got on an airplane... You trusted someone completely, and you had no control over it. Who did you trust? Interesting. That's the number one answer, pilot. But I would say no. Oh, mechanic. That's a good one too, but I would say no. Well, God's the given. He's like the default trump card in all the story. You trusted the engineers. You trusted the person that sat down at his desk one day or the lady that sat down at her desk one day and said, hey, what if we design something that looks like an aluminum hot dog and put two sticks on it? (laughs) You think we could get that off the ground? Would that be a cool idea? You trusted that their design, their understanding of mathematics and physics and the equation and the reality of gravity, that they had all of that figured out And when you bought your ticket, you never even thought about the engineer who put that whole thing together. Then the rest of you who answered, you are in fact correct as well, because I'm a very, very inclusive kind of guy, and I want you to feel good today. You did trust the mechanic, and you hoped that he wasn't working on Friday. He was in fact there on Wednesday, and he was alert doing what he was doing. You trusted the person at the assembly plant that riveted those sheets of aluminum together, that they did what they were supposed to do, and it was properly checked by a supervisor. You trusted the pilot 
All of us, when we step into a plane, we don't even think about it, but we step in and we sit down, we buckle up, and then we're willing to fly at 35,000 feet, 11,000 meters above the face of the earth and go, I'm good. All because of some human who put it together. So I would propose to you, I would put more trust in God who spoke and said, let it be, and it became who said, let there be light, let there be shape, let there be life. And he framed life for us, and he breathed life into us. Oh, I love what we can do in our human ingenuity, but none of it is ours anyhow. It's all from God. And so I would venture to say, all of us, those of you that maybe struggle to have confidence in someone you've never seen before, I've never seen most of the people who put those aircrafts together before I ever got on them, and I'm quite comfortable flying but I'm more comfortable when I walk out and I look up into the heavens and I go, God, you're there. And so I can have full confidence in you. And this is what James was getting at. He goes, you're running around like ants and you're making all these boastful claims of what you've done. But can I remind you, it's God. God's the one. And if you'll trust in Him and you'll trust in His plan and His purposes, your life will be the very life that He's called it to be. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that will prevail. There's something you can bank on. And so as we step into this day and we step into this next week, I would encourage all of us that the confidence that God calls us to, we honor great accomplishments. We do. But it's the recognition that at the beginning of it all, it was God's gift to us. And we bring God back into the equation because trusting in Him enables me to do all that He has prepared for me to do because the Bible says that I am His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He designed before the very beginning of time for me to do. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, "'Teach us to number our days.'" that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So my prayer for all of us today, may we have the wisdom to know the source of our confidence, that it's in Christ alone. Amen? So Father, today we pray, help us to live as men and women, young people who truly do. We boast, but we boast in you. We boast about what our God has done in the goodness of our Father. We boast in the greatness of a God who loved us so much with his grace that he forgave us of our sins. We boast that we are nothing other than what you have deemed for us to be. So every breath that we draw, every step we take, and every action of our lives, may it bring glory to Jesus Christ. And may we reflect this glory to the world around us. And I pray it in Christ's name today. Amen.